From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. And that's, yeah, we're not shooting for perfection, we're shooting for richness of experience. This week on the show, we revisit our conversation at Groundworks Indy. We spoke with then-executive director Phyllis Boyd. She gives us a tour of their on-site garden, tended by teams of young people in their youth development program. And she shares other community projects in Northwest Indianapolis. All that and more is coming up on Earth Eats, so stay with us. I'm Kate Young. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. At long last, Renee Reed is back with Food and Farming Reports. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. It has been a while, hasn't it? I've got a couple of stories this week from Harvest Public Media. A new law that went into effect this year requires food labels to identify genetically modified ingredients. But Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports on why some say the labels don't work. One criticism boils down to whether a QR code, those blocky images you scan with your phone, are the right way to let consumers know whether they're buying genetically modified food. The U.S. Department of Agriculture said yes, even though a study found 7% of Americans don't have sufficient internet access to use them. That's one reason why Meredith Stevenson, a lawyer at the Center for Food Safety, says the labeling requirements are inadequate. It just kind of has a disproportionate impact on minority communities, on you know, rural communities, older populations, because they won't be able to access this information. The law also provides alternatives to a QR code, like printed text on the packaging, a symbol, or the option to have a text message sent to the consumer. The Center for Food Safety is suing the USDA on behalf of several groups and retail chains, like Natural Grocers. I'm Seth Bodine. Rural areas are continuing to lose their full-service grocery stores and are forced to rely upon dollar stores and long drives to superstores to buy food. That's according to new data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which shows a 20% decline in grocery, specialty food, and convenience stores in rural areas over a six-year period. Jennifer Paulson is the executive director of FoodWorks, a Southern Illinois nonprofit that works with farmers and rural communities. She says the data highlights a paradox. In these very rural areas, which often have really beautiful climate and wonderful soils, you know, you can see farms for miles and miles, yet none of them are growing food that people can eat. Paulson says the solution is changes to the food system that make it sustainable and affordable for small-scale farmers to grow food for rural residents. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All and Seth Bodine for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed. The Biden administration is looking to redefine what a body of water is. The definition matters. It drives the federal rules landowners have to follow. 
Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports on the upcoming changes putting farmers and environmentalists at odds. Chris Brundick farms 450 acres in south-central Missouri, raising hogs and cattle and growing soybeans and corn. We're in his truck on a rainy fall day. Behind us are acres and acres of soybeans. In front of us is a ditch that has a couple of inches of water in it. This is hardly a creek, and this, in my opinion, should not be classified as a water of the U.S. Brundick says under the Obama administration, this ditch was classified as a water of the United States. That limited what he could do on the land next to it. The Trump administration reversed that rule, making only a fraction of rivers, streams, wetlands, and creeks like Brundick's part of the definition. Brundick is worried the Biden administration will set rules that will put it and other minor creeks back into the definition. And that could reduce the amount of crops he can grow and make food more expensive. Brundick might have to use less fertilizer and weed killer, and that might mean he couldn't plant anything. But if you start eliminating these acres that are sitting behind us right now, Jonathan, you know, enough of this is going to create a large enough impact that it's going to increase, it it could create more shortages. Brundick has his own idea on what waterways should make the cut. I think that there are some that need to be. It just, the word navigable is key. That would be rivers and lakes that can carry boat traffic. Some environmentalists say that's far too narrow. We need to make sure that we're protecting all the waters of the United States, not just the ones that people can boat in. Jen Pels is a biologist and attorney with the environmental group Wild Earth Guardians. She says it may be tempting to exclude a ditch that's dry 11 months out of the year in the waters of the United States definition, but it's still a critical part of the bigger water system. And then that one month out of the year, those chemicals or whatever they are that are in, it gets dumped, gets you know, washed down by a big storm event into a creek that gets washed into a perennial waterway, which gets washed into a bigger river, then you have a water quality problem. Pels wants to go back to the Obama administration's rules. Better yet, she says, include even more creek streams and tributaries. She's also concerned the Biden administration may be too willing to compromise with big ag. But some environmentalists are willing to seek middle ground. Jim Karpowitz with the Missouri Coalition for the Environment says perfect can't be the enemy of good. As an environmentalist, I'd like to be sort of on the practical side of the fence and and be able to take steps that can get done in order to um, initiate them immediately. David Aiken, a professor of agricultural economics at the University of Nebraska, says don't count on a compromise. I don't know that they can, that there's a needle of thread that would avoid all uh, court challenges. This is just such a controversial issue. It's going to end up before the Supreme Court ultimately. The Trump reversal of the Obama rules did end up in court. The result tilted more to what Trump wanted than what Obama imposed. Now, Aiken says it's up to Congress to clarify things. Chris Brundick wants that too. We never know with clarity what the rule is, and and we need something permanent. And we need Congress to do this, but it's just not a topic they want to pick up. In the meantime, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers are planning a series of virtual roundtables on what the rules should be on what makes something a water of the United States. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. The roundtables were scheduled for December 2021 and January 2022. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in the Midwest. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org.
Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. I've just crossed an expansive boulevard, Birdsell Parkway, in Indianapolis, and pulled into a parking lot between two greenhouses and a small, stone-studded, mid-century-style office building. I spot some tall sunflowers not quite in bloom and feathery garden beds on the other side of the building. I'm meeting with Phyllis Boyd. She is the executive director of Groundwork Indy. They're a nonprofit organization, one of 20 independent trusts nationwide that are connected to a national Groundwork USA network. Groundwork Indy is tasked with addressing the needs of their community as outlined in a quality of life plan that the Northwest area developed prior to 2015. It's the Northwest area of Indy, which is now called the Near Northwest area. It's been rebranded, but it's basically that beige area on that map. It's about six square miles. You can see we've got multiple parks, including Riverside Regional Park, that large green linear rectangle there. That's actually larger than Central Park. And we've got three waterways that converge in the area. So there's a lot going on. So our task is really to support the action items that the Arts and Parks and Public Space Action Team develop as a part of the Quality of Life Plan. And so those items we add to each year, each month, depending on what happens, but we do have some set things that we try to do. We have two youth employment programs. The first is our high schoolers green team program, ages 14 to 18, for youth enrolled in high school. And then we have a program called Ground Corps for out-of-school youth, and they are anywhere from 16 to 24. And probably if they're on that younger end of that range, they've dropped out of school. And so we work with them to get enrolled in programs to get their diplomas. Because we all know that if you don't have a high school diploma, it's really hard to make a living. Groundwork Indy also works to connect the participants to wraparound services. They assist with future job placement, but also if someone is facing housing challenges or transportation challenges, they address those issues as well to make sure they can get to work and those barriers are minimized. The Groundwork office building has an open floor plan with a small kitchen area in front that's always stocked with snacks. Phyllis said they've almost outgrown the building. The garden begins just outside the back door. Here's the garden that is um, ours that we manage. We also work in other garden spaces with other community gardens, other nonprofit partners, and support their work. Some folks, places we visit once a week, some places just once a month, and other places it might just be uh, at the beginning of the season or the end of the season to do you know, the prep or the, the winter wind down. Mostly it's community gardens, and that's what this is too. It's community, this garden is community access. You know, your typical community garden, you have people that have plots that they come and work at. We support those as well. But this garden here is managed by our youth, and that's Ian Oler over there. He's our garden manager, also our, our bike coordinator. <laughs> You'll see that. But this garden really is open to anyone to come into and to pick whatever they need whenever they need it. Okay. Yeah. It's really beautiful. 
This garden is extraordinary. This is initially what our first bed of peas, and then now you see it's um, the peas have finished up, and the corn is taking over, and we've got beans in there. Um, it's it's sort of a three sisters, two thirds three sisters, <laughs> and then around around the bend here, there's a there's a bed that's actually got the corn and the beans and the squash companion planted together. It's a gorgeous space. Wow. So it started out when we started in 2015. We didn't have a garden here. It was just lawn from here to the canal. And our first summer program in 2016, we had 10 green teamers and they really wanted to have a garden. So we installed two beds on either side of this exit here from the office. And every year they've made it larger and larger. And last year, Ian had the brilliant idea of merging all the beds into one serpentine bed. So this was, this used to be discrete rectangles and now they're all together. <laughs> That's an interesting modification because you were able to keep the original beds, but right. just make something more yeah, flowing. Just to connect them, to get more area in, in garden, and then to really think about this idea of interplanting and diversity in the garden. So we've got flowers here, we've got vegetables here. Um, try to keep the water off the leaves, Dre, down on the ground. Um, and it's great for pollinators. Yeah, and I think it's just really beautiful. We walked over to a garden bed being tended by Ian, the garden manager, and one of the green team members, Kel. Hey, Kel, what are you working on? Uh, I'm just cutting these. So, uh, the, uh, so this won't connect like on this vine, so it's loose, so I'm just cutting this right here. So I can separate it. Right. These are our former pea trellises. Oh, I see. So, yeah, constant change in the garden, for sure. Phyllis and I continued on our garden tour. So there's a squash in here, some greens. And I love all these narrow pathways with stone and wood and logs and stuff. It's really pretty. So this was, so Ian has been studying permaculture and just forest agroecology and is sort of bringing those principles in here about how you really take care of the soil and to build the ecology in the soil and the soil health. And that is really reliant on having a good substrate for mycorrhizal fungi and that's where the logs come in but it also helps you can see that the land sort of falls down a little bit it creates these terraces where we're holding water a little bit better in the beds sometimes what we're doing is when we're watering by hand we have a a rain barrel back there and you see they've gotten a cart and five gallon buckets where they've gotten water from the rain barrel sometimes we'll just take a whole bucket and just pour it onto like one of those logs and let it just sort of seep in slowly. That is really nice. I've never heard of that. It's beautiful. Peppers I mean, you've got lettuce in the middle of summer. That's impressive. I see all this inner planting. So there's peppers, there's lettuce, there's watermelon, some flowers, calendula. I see some amaranth maybe. We've collected some of the calendula flowers like a couple weeks ago when they've dried and we're going to be using them to make a salve with some of the plantain that's growing in the garden as well. It's great. 
cabbage interplanted here with dill because it helps to control the cabbage moth and protect them. We had some cabbages that were not planted with the dill and they just got decimated. They're not even, they're not around anymore. They're just <laughs> gone. Oh, and I see you have a few chickens walking around. Yeah, we have a flock. We've got two roosters. Um, I'm actually going to grab a stick because one of our roosters is really, he can be very aggressive, which is his job, but I don't need him attacking us. Oh, he's inside the pen right now. The rooster that's very protective. But we're actually going to get some more hens. I had a neighbor where I live just come up last week and say, hey, you need more chickens? I was like, uh, yeah, but not here, but at work. He's like, oh yeah, I've got 20. I'm like, we'll, we'll take 10. So every rooster should have at least six hens. And we had some hens get taken. There's a fox that comes every morning and we catch one of the security cameras and he visits and some days he gets lucky. So you have a, a looks like a pretty secure pen for them and then during the day they just kind of walk around? They roam around. We added that pen at the end of last summer right after two dogs just busted into the, the coop. We thought it was secure but they just knocked the doors down and then and got two two more hens so we ended up putting the, the larger pen around which is more secure except for there was a gap between the top section and the fence and the fox climbed up the fence and in through that narrow opening and got in the coop and one by one took out three hens so we're just like, and you okay. caught all that on security camera or you just know that's what happened and we they, they caught it because we wouldn't have been able we were like where'd they go because <laughs> he didn't leave a trace they were just gone and so do you get eggs from the chickens we do and either the youth take them home or we run a food pantry emergency food pantry that we started at the beginning of covid last year mondays and fridays and so we'll give out eggs there and so the youth are also learning about caring for chickens and about their behavior and all that. Yeah, yeah. And they, they take care of them. And so it's caring for chickens is not that hard. And because of that, you know, you can get eggs and it's a real sort of low-key way to get a protein source for your family. I haven't had youth really take up having chickens at home, but I've had staff members that now have chickens. So it's good. And you have chickens? I do have chickens. I, I, I love having eggs. <laughs> and then a couple years ago, we planted this native plant border here with the Marion County Soil and Water Conservation District funding. And then we worked with them to actually have different guilds. So the first guild up there is a pawpaw guild, and they helped us you know, pick, up, pick the plants to plant with that. This is the plum guild right here. Then there's the serviceberry guild and then an elderberry one just past where that utility pole is. And so they helped to maintain it or just helped you no, plant it? No, they just it? helped us get the plants and then put them in, mm -hmm. and then we maintained it. Wow, look at all the pollinators I on know. that. It's like everybody, <laughs> like mm -hmm. bees, wasps, bumblebees. Flies. Flies, little tiny native bees. That's really cool. Those guilds? that Phyllis pointed out? That refers to a permaculture term for a collection of plants that help each other grow and don't compete for all the same nutrients. The effect is a diverse and floral living fence between the garden space and the road. We approached a shaded lawn area with brightly colored Adirondack chairs arranged in a large circle. 
I asked Phyllis about it. So the first year that we started, well, we've always wanted to connect and do connect this sort of hands-on work with the idea that it really all starts with visioning and like, what is it that you want to see? And my background's in landscape architecture and I'm an artist. And so it starts with imagining how you want to change your environment and your surroundings, make it better. Or just what do you want to, what's beautiful to you? How do you want to make that manifest? And so we work with the youth on not just the hands-on work, but then also the, the visioning and design. And everything from like park spaces, so that Riverside Park plan that you saw, a park, we worked on the park plan as a part of the outreach team. But then the youth also got to give their input on what they wanted to see in the park. We may, if you have time, go drive over to the Flanner House Community Orchard, which we were part of that process in terms of designing that, working with the design team on that, and then now we maintain it. So the space here definitely has their imprint on it. They're the ones that decided to create what they wanted to call a chill corner over here. And it started at first with just a few chairs for community members. But then with COVID last year, it became our outdoor meeting space. And so every morning, you know, we have our morning meeting and, and this is where it happens now. And sometimes we end the day with a closing circle. It's definitely become one of the spaces that helps. I, don't, I think it like holds the garden, like, mm-hmm. you know, they got the trail on the one side, the big circle, the office. So for our listeners, can you describe what the space looks like? Yeah, so you see a large circle with chairs, outdoor chairs, that some of them that were constructed by the youth, others by volunteers, but they've all been painted in different colors. And it's just kind of like they pick up the colors from the garden flowers. And so there's a chair that's blue and orange. There's one that's uh, turquoise and fuchsia. And there's a couple benches um, and some logs. And that just becomes a really nice sitting space. And so we start with the morning circle. We do a check-in because it's important to know how youth are doing when they come in. We ask them either, you know, tell us how you do on a scale of 1 to 10. Some circles, we have a, a mood meter sheet of paper, and it's like, take two words, and what's your word of the day? Blend it together. And then we have a check-in question, and it could be, if you were an animal, what would you be? Or what's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? Something like that, just to kind of connect and, and learn more about them. And then we all stand up and... We do a stretch circle because the work is very physical, as you can see, <laughs> and they're young and they're not necessarily used to thinking like, oh, I've got to really like get my body ready to do this work. But each person gets a chance to lead in a stretch, and it's a very kind of low-key way of having each person take the lead on something, just even for a minute, and just have all eyes on you, and then you just lead a stretch. You don't even say anything. So we try to have opportunities where we build on those small experiences and give folks chances to, to be leaders and guide their peers and things. And just, we, so we have right now 42 youth in the green team program this summer and they're broken up into three teams. Two of those youth in each team are the co-leads, co-captains. I try to do male and female. And they're green teamers that have been here for at least two years. About half of our current green teamers are uh, repeats from previous years. Um, And so we have usually way more applicants than we have spaces for. We were able to manage, this is our biggest summer yet. 
Okay. Since 2016, yeah. And so it's a it's a work program. So they're it's it's basically a job. They're mm-hmm. getting paid, mm-hmm. and they're learning skills. Yeah. So for most of the youth that are new, this is their first job ever, and so they're getting acquainted with the practice of getting places on time, letting us know if and when they're going to be late, calling ahead. We have conversations about what does it mean to be a part of a team, how important it is to have a good attitude, even when like the work is hard. And that's, you know, some days we're out here, it's sweltering. And how do you work through that even when it's tough? And if you talk to each team, they're going to tell you they've got the best team. <laughs> and it's great. And um, they work well together. They get along. They build bonds. And, and part, of, part of the skills that they're building are ones that are more about, just as a human being, how do you get along in the world? And, and what does it mean to, to build, build a sense of belonging, to build internal resilience? And so it's... It's the life skills that we're working on, as well as the job skills. And in some ways, the life skills are the most important part of what we do. Right. So many of the people who are participating may not pursue careers or jobs in agriculture or in, uh, you Natural know, landscaping resources. or, yeah. They may not. I mean, for me, it's great if they want to. Uh, the most important thing is they start to really figure out what it is that interests them and to know that they have a space here to kind of start to explore stuff and talk to us about things and and figure that out yeah so it's building other kind of skills besides just learning how to grow stuff absolutely but the growing stuff is a great the growing stuff for the community the taking care of community spaces is a great way to build community connections it's also a great way for them to understand the level of agency that they have in the world. You know, even with these small things that we do that are really actually quite immense and beautiful. Could you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with this or just what inspired you to move in this direction? I was working for a small landscape architecture and planning firm for about eight years and we had tried to do projects with youth involve them in the planning phases of things but it was really hard to get the project schedule meshed up with the school schedule and sometimes we'd be able to have some interactions that were meaningful but not real deep and so you'd you know to go through a whole process thing like this the timing was was never quite right and then so I knew I wanted to figure out how to work with youth more in that way. And then my former boss and the owner of the company was wanting to scale down and eventually plan for retirement and had thought to have myself and another coworker take over the business and buy it from her. And we went down that road for about six months. And then I realized I was going to be going around the state doing marketing and like you know drumming up the business and that's not really the work I wanted to do I wanted to stay working with community more closely and in this community in particular in Indianapolis which is where I'm from so I decided that was not the route I wanted to go and decided to leave the company I didn't really know what I was going to do just that I wanted to figure out how I was going to work with youth and then this job came up and it was a good fit Well, it seems like it's uh, 
maybe helpful to have that national organization that's already kind of set up a structure so you're not starting just from nothing yeah the the great thing about that oh look there's a great blue heron a gray bird with a long beak and a giant wingspan glided over the garden as we spoke well i guess being so close to the canal here you get some of those water birds yeah so yes a groundwork usa the way you get a trust in your city or town you actually apply to Groundwork USA to do it and then you have to put together a whole collective of folks to serve as the steering committee to go through this feasibility process oh, okay. to do that and the steering committee is residents it's other nonprofits in the area city government municipal folks and then other partners that are stakeholders that are, are relevant and obviously at the end of that feasibility process it was decided that Indianapolis could handle another nonprofit and that the work that was needed to be done was enough to necessitate a, a groundwork in me starting here. And that had already happened before you came on. Right. I came on when that was done, when the first board had already formed, and then they issued a job announcement for the executive director. So you're the first executive director for the program. I am. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of neat. So you're, you're joining something that already has some structure, but you also get to... Get to be the visionary too yeah. yeah and so we knew we wanted to have a youth program and so we started that off right away like I started in August of 2015 we had our first youth, youth program in October this was maybe the beginnings of our forest ecological approach to the gardening here this tree that died and was cut down last year and then Ian started excavating around the roots and then started planting just sort of this wildness beautiful wildness and you know we've talked to the youth about this whole idea of the hidden life of trees you know what's going on under the soil and like how important this thing is that you don't even really see and take for granted just how alive it is and you can't have a good garden without good soil it's a good metaphor for them too there's that saying right like if you have a plant that's not growing, the issue isn't with the plant, it's with the environment. And so I think that applies to these kids as well. Phyllis tells me that they work with a local arborist who brings them large trunks and branches to incorporate into their garden work. They're great for these mounds that we're doing here. Hugel culture. Mm-hmm. It's a German word. I'm sure other cultures have done this as well, but you, you dig out a shallow pit you put in all these branches and you put the soil back on that you dug out. And then as the wood breaks down, it creates that richer uh, soil environment for the mycorrhizal fungi and other things to live. It holds moisture better, plants grow, and they're happier. So this is the second round of Hugel culture mounds that we've done. The first round are the front ones along the way there, and we had just native plants in those. And you see how those have settled in mm-hmm. a lot more, um, but they start this tall. And then this year, with all of the extra lumber that we have, or wood, we're able to like make them a little more substantial. What we like to do, and Ian's really great about this, is we have a lot of seeds inside, and when there's a spot that's ready for something new to go in, he just says go go pick something that you guys want to grow and they'll go get a seed pack spread the seeds and so it's very hands-on and like we're not try it yeah try it out I mean that's what it is it's like it's an experiment and if it doesn't work 
uh, guess what? You can plant something else there later. Yeah, I think that's an important part of working with youth from my own experience is that you can't have somebody who's too controlling. Yeah. Because if you want a perfect garden, you're going to not have <laughs> the right experience for everyone involved, yeah, you know? Right. And that's, yeah, we're not shooting for perfection. We're shooting for richness of experience. I'm speaking with Phyllis Boyd at Groundwork Indy. She was just talking about hugel culture. Hugel culture mimics the forest floor environment to create rich soil for garden beds. In just a moment, we have a story from Harvest Public Media about farmers using the actual forest floor in agriculture. Later in the show, Phyllis Boyd takes me on a driving tour of some pocket gardens and art installations throughout the Northwest neighborhood, and a community orchard created through a partnership with Flanner House. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. The role of trees in agriculture tends to be viewed as limited to the lumber industry or highly organized orchards to grow fruit. But Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports some farmers are looking to the forest floor to get more people into agriculture, at least part-time. Dennis Lindbergh's five acres in southern Missouri don't look like a farm. After making our way past a fence and through a thicket of sticker bushes, we're in a heavily forested area on sloping ground. All around the forest floor are smatterings of small green plants. They're intentional. Those are the crops. Now, here's some ginseng here that I planted, and I'm taking the seed from it and just planting it right down in here so it'll spread. But you got to get the seed in the ground. Lindbergh grows ginseng, golden seal, and other plants that prosper in the shade. They're used in cooking, medicines, and supplements. He's one of a growing number of people who are doing very small-scale farming in forested areas to serve niche markets. Lindbergh says it's possible to make a decent living this way. You grow 100 pounds of ginseng root out in the woods at five, 600 a pound, well, that's pretty good money. It's not quite that easy, though, because ginseng needs seven years to grow before harvest, and it's worth more if you wait longer. Lindbergh has been forest farming for almost 40 years, and much of that time he's had another job raising hogs. Forest farming advocates say it's an underutilized form of agriculture. Hannah Hemmelgarn is with the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry. She says the key is to find the right crops to plant in the right kind of forest. And, and I think there are ways that, that people who are doing this are getting really creative and creating markets and uh, creating interest in these value-added products especially. Forest farmers are also finding markets for products including black walnuts, witch hazel, and ramps. The Helmuth family owns Ozark Forest Mushrooms in Missouri. They grow a special variety of shiitake mushrooms on white oak logs. Instead of building shade shelters, they grow them under a stand of yellow pine trees on their land about 150 miles southwest of St. Louis. Stacks of logs under special blankets are covered with mushrooms waiting to be picked. Henry Helmuth says these mushrooms are analogous to heirloom tomatoes. These have uh, a stronger flavor, are more unique, um, 
and it's also just a different variety so you'll see the ones in the store look slightly different um, they've got just a subtly different flavor henry helmuth is the son of the founders of the farm they harvest between 100 and 500 pounds of mushrooms a week all year round and drive them to St. Louis, where they're sold for $10 a pound wholesale to restaurants and specialty grocery stores and a couple bucks more at farmer's markets. He says this farm is profitable in part because they also have a B&B that is booked months in advance and includes a mushroom tour with a stay. Not to be too pessimistic, but there's many easier ways to make a living. At just any small-scale farming operation, you're going to realize it's not... Uh, a prof- that profitable an endeavor. It's a hard endeavor, seven days a week, always working. Um, but also a lot of people love that lifestyle, you know, feeling connected to your work directly. And that draw to farm and work with the land may get more people into forest farming, partially because the cost to get into the business is much lower than conventional farming. Hemelgarn says a few acres and some basic supplies costs far less than hundreds of acres and the high-tech machinery needed to grow row crops like corn or wheat. Keeping trees in the ground, planting trees, and thinking about ways to integrate our livelihoods with tree landscapes and making a livelihood or a part of your livelihood from those spaces, um, I, I hope is going to be more part of the agricultural landscape moving forward. She says another part of the allure to forest farming is the desire to mitigate climate change. More trees means less carbon in the atmosphere. The U.S. Department of Agriculture identifies forest farming as a good alternative to supplement income for farmers and other landowners, but stops short of calling it a full-time occupation. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the heartland. Learn more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Earlier in the show, we spoke with Phyllis Boyd of Groundwork Indy. We toured their on-site garden, where teams of young people tend to the plants and chickens as part of a youth development program. I wanted to hear about the other work that the green teams, ground core groups, and groundwork staff engage in throughout the community. Right now we have a project called the Community-Led Environmental Action Project, and at the moment that's mostly staff supported, but we're partnering with others in the community to do this where we are uh, seeking community input on what are the issues and concerns that people have about the environment, everything from lead in soils to what's going on in your house, what's your water quality, what's the air quality outdoors, indoors, and sort of just where do we go from here? There's a lot going on. There's brownfield property that may or may not have contamination. There are a lot of vacant properties. So the in this area, about uh, a third of the properties are vacant, a third are renter-occupied, a third are owner-occupied. And so that's a lot of vacant properties. And with, with vacant properties come a lot of issues, including like criminal activity. And, and one of the worst ones is just chronic dumping, but it's not the residents that are doing it. It's, it's folks either working for landlords that have evicted people and they're just dumping like furniture or it's construction companies dumping construction waste because they don't want to go pay for it, you know, at the, at the landfill. So they'll come find a vacant lot that doesn't have a lot of eyes on it, and then they'll bump on there. Yeah. yeah. And so then you're getting all kinds of contaminants just from that. Yeah, yeah. And it's ongoing. It's an ongoing issue. 
So one of the things we do besides gardening in this space is we've activated some vacant properties on, on the street up here, Raider Street. Before, one of the sort of connecting projects for us is that before, when I was working at the other firm, I worked with the community on a Safe Routes to School plan and then worked with youth at the two elementary schools nearby, asked them, one, to map their routes to and from school, how they walked or biked, and then also asked them, what is it that you like about your walking and biking to school? What do you not like about it? And the things that kind of rose to the top in terms of what really was troubling to them were they were getting chased by dogs, they were not liking the scary kind of abandoned properties that they had to walk by. There were adults that would harass them. And just some other things that were, you know, that no no kid should have to deal with on their way to school, right? Mm-hmm. And other issues in terms of, when we did a sidewalk assessment or a pedestrian assessment with them and had them go out in teams. We had three different grades participating. And so one of the grades would take notes, one was taking photos, one grade was like the the lookout to make sure that they were weren't, they were safe as they crossed the street, wow. and they were just going around around the schools and just marking what sidewalks were in good shape, what ramps, also taking note of like how many abandoned properties were around the school. So just in one school alone, there were like seventy in 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 the three block radius around the school. There were like seventy abandoned properties. Wow! And so we can take a drive and see see that too. But what we identified with the, with the mapping of their routes was like, which are the routes that are their kind of collector routes? And then that helped us determine where to put the lot activation project. And that was a separate project that I worked on with another artist, Lashana Crow Storm, and we got an Art Place America grant to fund that. So what is a lot activation? It can be anything from a garden to art to just putting up a fence and mowing it and making it not look like it's abandoned. But activation is really like, for me, it's like, are you inviting people in to it? And And making it cared for, caring for for it. Yeah, cared for. Mm -hmm. When you're doing the, like when you're, having these meetings or discussions and working with the youth, do you ever touch on issues of food justice, environmental justice, those kinds of things? Yeah. So we ground the work in the context of the community. So that includes um, learning about historic and structural racism, institutional racism, why the highway is where it is, why the neighborhood looks like it does. It's not just because their parents or grandparents aren't trying or haven't tried. It's You look at redlining, the history of redlining, and how that has impacted chronic disinvestment in areas and why we have these vacant properties here. We look at the issue of mass incarceration because that affects them. We look at violence in the community and how that has impacted them. So we it's, it's super contextualized. There's no work that happens without some explanation of the multiple whys mm-hmm. and, and also you, the, the the environmental side of it like if we're planting a tree we talk about why a tree what does a tree do how do trees function they understand we've got this garden that's got all these different plants in it they get that we're supporting pollinators that it's important to have biodiversity and also how some neighborhoods have tree canopies that are mature and some 
don't. <laughs> right, exactly. So the, you know, the heat island effect, we've talked about climate change. Some of the work that we do is, is super labor intensive. Like we go around, there's probably a crew out right now that's clearing curbs on Raider Street because one of the issues is we don't have street cleaners come along. So the curbs get built up with debris, they're growing plants, the storm drains get blocked. And the streets flood, which means people's basements are getting wet. They're getting in-home mildew. So there are all these things that are connected to, to the urban environment, the hydrological cycle. And it's, we try to make those connections because nothing is happening in a vacuum. I think it's shocking to some of them, particularly like things like lead in the soils. Like they, some of them had no idea. Like, what? Like, this is an issue. And learning about Flint places like that, environmental justice issues that we have here as well as other places in America. So the socio-political stuff that's happening that really does impact them and people that look like them. Most of our youth are youth of color and they're low income. Let's take a drive. Okay. And I'll show you. We took the groundwork pickup truck to drive around the neighborhood, looking at projects. This, the canal is the borderline between the Northwest Civic neighborhood and the Riverside neighborhood. I'm just gonna go across the canal so that you can actually see how beautiful it is. It's a neighborhood in the core of Indianapolis. You can see that there's quite a few vacant properties, but then also a lot of actual neighbors that are here and living and that care about the neighborhood. This is one of the lots that we activated with a fence. This is an intersection that we freshen up every year in partnership with IU Health for their IU Health Days of Service. We drove through the Raider Street corridor. I saw the vacant lot activation sites with raised garden beds, colorful picket fencing, and art sheds with murals painted by local artists like Michi Shakur. You could characterize this as a economically struggling neighborhood, but then that's only really a part of the story. There, you know, the residents that live here, a lot of them are very engaged, have a lot of gifts and talents, and it's a very rich neighborhood. It might not be economically rich, but it's rich in other ways. We'll go back to Raider Street. This firehouse, they're, they're renovating this um, old fire station. It's a really cool building. Oh, let me back up. That house back there, the house back there across the alley from the wellness garden is an Aspire House house. It's a duplex, and they are turning it into a potter's house where on one side a ceramicist will have a studio um, and then do community classes, and on the other side they'll live. Wow. So that's just right here. Inspire House is started by um, Sharon and Tim Clark, an African-American couple. And it's next to the Wellness Garden yeah. and across the street from the neighborhood park. Wow. So like I said, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of people who really love this community and are working hard. So this is the Flanner House Community Orchard. It went in a few years ago. The trees are getting mature and they're producing. We arrived at a spacious green space 
with young fruit trees and gravel paths. The orchard is near the two-acre Flanner Farm and next to Cleo's Bodega, with a gorgeous new mural painted across the long side of the building. Flanner House worked with Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, or KIB, to start the orchard. For their green space projects, they, they pick a designer to work with. They work with community teams to pick projects, and this was one of the first community orchards that they've ever done. And then they worked with our youth to sort of think about the layout, what were the kinds of spaces that were needed in the community orchard, so a, a fire pit and things like that. So we come back every weekend. It's an ongoing thing of controlling the weeds in the yeah. in the gravel because we're not trying to be, you know, spray herbicides and stuff here. So it's just basically hand removal and it's it's a constant sort yeah. of process. So we just yeah. work our way around weekly. Uh, this mural was installed uh, for Juneteenth. And there was a big celebration here. It's by Tasha Beckwith. It's gorgeous. And it, I love it. The other mural on the other side is looking towards the past and arming the past. And this to me is sort of like black futurism and like looking forwards. And it's one of my favorite murals in the city. That might be a good place for us to end. Looking to the future. I've been speaking with Phyllis Boyd, Executive Director of Groundwork Indy. Please go to our website to learn more about the great work happening in the northwest area of Indianapolis. That's at eartheats.org. Since this story first aired in 2021, Phyllis Boyd has left Groundworks Indy to become the director of Indy Parks with the city of Indianapolis. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us. The Earth Eats team includes Ayabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Phyllis Boyd, Ian and Cal, and everyone at Groundwork Indy. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.